What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. This is Resistance in Residence, where we profile artists using their gifts to change the world. This week's Resistance in Residence artist is storyteller, documentary filmmaker, and journalist Katie Vogue. Katie, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Super excited to have you on. For listeners to know, Katie and I uh, know each other from being students at Berkeley High together many, many years ago, but I won't say how long to not age us. <laughs> and I, I maybe have some ideas about how you might answer some of these first questions, but I'm really interested in how you'll explore it. I'm going to ask you about what first got you focused on and interested in filmmaking, and then I'll ask you about what first got you interested and focused on journalism. But let's start with filmmaking. Where does that go back to for you? Yeah, sure. Um, well, yeah, I will go back to high school. So you and I were both in a small school program at Berkeley High called CAS. Shout out to CAS, Communication Arts and Sciences. And so we, part of that curriculum was all about media literacy. And so we had to take video classes and I also took photo classes at Berkeley High. So I was always interested in um, visual storytelling, but also the combination of visual storytelling and exploring topics that were important to me, you know, within the world of social justice and, um, what was happening in the world and what needed to be talked about or exposed or explored. So that's where it started at that level. Um, and then, you know, I studied, I minored in art in college and did some documentary work, but then I worked in uh, global education. I was working and running a global education nonprofit that took me all over the world and connecting classrooms in these sister school partnerships. And so it was all about empathy education. And ultimately, when I left that job and wanted a career change, I I felt like the part of, about in that job that I loved the most was the storytelling part. And this idea, we had this, you know, idea that the saying that other people say as well, you can't hate anyone whose story you know. So just I always felt like the storytelling part of education was the part that excited me the most and the part that I felt was most impactful. Okay, so I happen to know that the global education nonprofit you were involved with was a major portion of your young adult life. I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit more. Obviously, it shaped you a lot. Yes. So another shout out to Berkeley High. It actually started as my senior year internship. Um, at that time, I had met the founder who now actually also lives in Oakland, Jess Remington. And she and I met through this other leadership program and she was starting starting this nonprofit. So we started it as kids, you know, in high school, she was taking a gap year. Um, and then we ran it basically out of our dorm rooms for a few years um, in college, and it was connecting um, middle and high school teachers around the world. And then because we had run it as college students, we thought, okay, well, what if we change the model and have this two-tiered system where university students are, are facilitating this curriculum that we create and co-create with the teachers and partners all around the world? Um, and then they're the facilitators sending back, you know, videos and messages and letters back and forth between these partner classrooms. And so then the second tier is that middle school age group. And um, it was a really 
rewarding job and it was really exciting. And I got to meet really amazing people and work with really amazing people who I still am in touch with today. The organization no longer exists, but, um, you know, our, our alumni and the spirit of it is still out there for sure. And I really appreciate how you described it also as, as part of your formative experience in, in moving on to the next thing, which was another part of storytelling and journalism. What really got you interested in journalism as a storyteller? Yeah, so after I left that organization, I went to India for a few months to meet up with a friend of a former colleague of mine. Actually, she um, was based there and has family there, and she was making a docu- a short documentary about an orphanage. So we were there for a few months shooting that and directing that together. Um, and I was at this point, kind of thinking, do I want to go to film school? Is that this? Is that the route that I want to take in terms of storytelling? Um, and I kind of had that in the back of my mind. She had just gone to film school, so I was hearing about her experience. And then I also <laughs> wanted to learn Spanish, and I had always wanted to do that and live in Latin America. So after I finished in India, I moved to Colombia, <laughs> and really quickly I got a job at an online publication um, that was telling stories. It's called. It was called. It also doesn't exist anymore. But it was called Innovation Stories. Also telling stories of innovators, um, mostly in the global south. Um, you know, solutions to different development issues. And so I did that for a few months, and then that company folded. But I thought, okay, maybe it's time to go to grad school now. And again, I was deciding between film school and journalism school, and I thought that I have and had um, a nose for a story, but I didn't have a news sense. And so my decision for journalism school was basically, okay, I think I can become a filmmaker, make documentaries if I go to journalism school, but if I want to keep the option of being a journalist open, I won't know how to do that if I go to film school. So I went to journalism school. And... From uh, the internet, when I Googled you, I found out that you have a specialization in what is referred to as character-driven verite storytelling. What does that mean? (laughs) Um, Yeah, so character-driven storytelling is what I like to do um, in terms of, yeah, my journalism work and also filmmaking. And so not, you know, not a lot of breaking news coverage in terms of my journalism or reporting work, but focusing on the story of individuals in order to tell a larger story, whether it's related to, you know, international, you know, politics or policy um, domestically or internationally or whatever it may be. Um, And then verite is a term in verite cinema is a term in, in filmmaking, which, um, describes a type of filmmaking usually documentary that is very observational it's it's like it's meant to um immerse the viewer in the scene with the with the characters or with the participants in the film and and sort of feel like a fly on the wall rather than a lot of times news pieces and documentaries can sort of feel uh contrived like okay now uh wash the dishes pretend like it's natural (laughs) but I spent I spent so much time with the family in my film um that I think I did accomplish this feeling of kind of just being immersed and being a fly on the wall um so those two things go together I think because uh my interest in character driven stories is to really 
uh, yeah, build empathy and have the viewers feel like they can live in their shoes for, you know, the duration of that story. And so bring us into that a little bit. You have a brand new documentary called All We Carry. We're going to get into some of the process behind it in just a minute. But if you can give us just like a very quick summary of what the film is about, and then we'll kind of break it down. And I specifically want to talk about the caravan part. But let's just start with a quick breakdown. Sure. So All We Carry is a feature feature length documentary about one asylum-seeking family from Honduras. We, as the viewers, meet them uh, when they're on the caravan and traveling across Mexico. So that's in 2018. Then we're in detention, a detention center with them as well. And finally they get out and there's a big plot twist that happens where they get connected to um, a community that happens to be a Jewish community in, in Seattle. And one one family there has an extra home for them to live in and they need a home because uh, they have years to wait for their asylum hearing and um, they were denied work permits. So then the rest of the film is exploring their limbo and ends with the answer to their asylum hearing. Which we won't spoil for listeners. Let's go back to the caravan. You mentioned the caravan. I even mentioned the caravan. Before that, for folks who have no idea what we're talking about, what even is the caravan? And and what was your process to get to a point where you were going to join it? I mean, you know, I think people have been doing this for many, many years, but there's a specific organization called Pueblos Sin Fronteras or People Without Borders that have been doing this for a long time, um, which is you know, supporting and guiding people in, in, in leaving from the so- south of Mexico, normally Tapachula in southern Mexico, traveling to northern Mexico. Many of them are often asylum seekers. Um, and the idea with the caravan is safety in numbers. And so they're raising awareness about the, you know, the international human right to seek asylum, to uh, seek safety. Um, and at the same time, raising awareness of the fact that it is very dangerous and made very dangerous throughout Mexico for various different reasons. And so they do things that many people do on their own, but it's safer in a group. So they're, you know, they do travel on the, on the train, the cargo train that many people travel on, but they don't get on or off when it's moving, which is the really big part of why it's dangerous. Um, And, you know, they walk, but they always walk together and they have all these, um, values that they follow to support each other. Okay, so in 2018, this was happening. Um, it always, it often was happening around Easter in March, in the end of March or early April. So there was a group that was setting off, and a journalist who's now a friend of mine, Adolfo Flores, was at the time working for BuzzFeed, and he was going to follow their whole journey across Mexico. But this time it was way more than it usually is. It was over a thousand people. So he published a piece. Um, and then this, and then the Fox and friends picked it up and then the president saw it. So the president at the time was Donald Trump and he started tweeting about it. And that's when the caravan became the big news story that we all know today because it had been happening for many years, but there was more than usual. And then also, you know, he was saying there's this group of people, no one's stopping them. They're storming the border. And then he began putting a lot of, and then of course that draw, meant, you know, the whole, the whole international, you know, media core descended upon this group of migrants crossing Mexico and it became this big story. Um, and also President Trump was putting a lot of pressure on 
the Mexican government to stop them. So that also made that particular caravan trip uh, really difficult and slowed down because of that pressure. So I got there and started covering it um, for a few different media outlets and then began to focus on the story of this one family, which ultimately ended up being the beginning of my film. All right. Before we get specifically into the story of that family, which I which we're going to do in just a minute, I, I just want to hear a little bit more about your personal experience getting on this train and getting into this caravan with a large number of people who are, you know, seeking refuge, going toward a process where they're seeking asylum. And I have to assume, although I don't know, but I have to assume that you maybe stood out amongst the (laughs) people because that's not, that was not your purpose. That was not why you were on that train. You have U.S. citizenship, you have a U.S. passport. What was your experience even just getting onto the train at the beginning? Yeah, so when I, so I was living in Colombia still at that time freelancing and I started hearing about the caravan on the news and I recognized this concept, this story, because I knew someone who I had met in Colombia, but was, you know, now in Mexico, but he's an American citizen as well. And he was really becoming um, a full-time immigrant rights activist. So he was working with uh, Pueblos Sin Fronteras. So when I heard Trump, you know, tweeting about it and being on the news, I, I wrote to him and said, is this you? He said, yeah, I'm on my way there. We're totally, you know, overwhelmed. Uh, we've never had this much media coverage and this much kind of attention, good and bad. And so I thought, okay, I've got a good source on the ground. And I had not too long before that finished, you know, my master's degree in international journalism and understood that, um, sometimes you have to go to the story. And so I thought that it was a fascinating story and an important one to tell. And I had good access, I, I thought, and I was ended up being correct um, through this contact of mine who, you know, we had a lot of trust and he was um, a leader in this group. So um, it helped me, you know, that he, that he and I knew each other. And so I got to Guadalajara um, in central Mexico, essentially, uh, where they were passing through. And um, he said, OK, if you want to embed with the caravan and go on the train and really get close access, I think you should talk to people. We're going to have a meeting with all the families that are going to be seeking asylum, because that's another thing. They give advice to people along the way, help them prepare for what's going to happen in terms of seeking asylum at the border. And so I went and spoke in front of the group and said what I wanted to do, which was, you know, there's a lot of media coverage. I know you guys are all busy just making this journey, but people are paying attention internationally. And a lot of it is pretty sensationalized. And um, I'd like to tell a quieter, closer, more intimate story of one person's or one family's trip across Mexico. And it was really moving. Everyone clapped. Again, I think it was partially because, you know, at that time, my Spanish wasn't as good. And I was friends with Leo. So then I left and then it was go time where everyone was moving towards the train station, the train, not station, that's the train tracks. Um, and then I found people when I got there and they said, yeah, yeah, it's fine. They said, it's okay. We voted because there's this really flat structure amongst this group, you know? And so people um, are really conscious of making sure everyone is kind of voting on these things. So they said yes. And then um, it was 
becoming nighttime and I had this commission to do a story following one family. And then all of a sudden, and I had found one family, this mom and these two daughters, and all of a sudden women and children were able to take buses, which is a safer option. You know, they'd gotten some donations. And then I was there with no family to follow and the train was going to come any minute. Um, and then I was talking to my f- journalist friend and up walks this young man. And I said to him, you know, I started making nervous conversation. Like, have you ever been on the train before? Are you nervous? And he said, yeah, I've been on the train, but I'm not nervous because I always go with God. And so I said, well, I better go with you then. <laughs> and then it turned out that he also had a family that had, and his wife and baby had just gotten on this train. So he was someone who I could follow because he was a family seeking asylum. And I asked him if I could follow his story. And he said, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, you can do it. And then five minutes later, the train got there and we jumped on. I mean, it stopped, but we jumped on. And yeah, I stood out, but it really helped that I had put in that effort um, to make that announcement and talk about what I was there to do because then really the people on those train cars that I was on for the next what ended up being three days, they had seen me, you know, they kind of knew what I was about, about, you know, not adding to these kind of splashy headlines, but just telling a a slower story about, you know, one person's experience and why they were fleeing and what it was really like to cross Mexico in these dangerous conditions. And just real briefly, like there's a thousand people on a train that you are joining them with. What's the energy of that train ride? Are people like taking care of each other? Are people very nervous? Are people silent? What's happening on that train? I think we hear about the big picture piece of it a lot, but we don't really hear about the what it feels like there? Yeah, great question. Um, So at that point, a lot of people had been traveling together for a couple of weeks. So there was definitely a lot of camaraderie, friendships, even later by the end when we got to Tijuana, I understood there was a few budding romances (laughs) that happened on the caravan. Um, But in the train car that I was in, you know, because so many people like, you know, women and children had just gotten spots on buses. Um, I was in this train car that you can actually climb into. So I sort of, you know, the train is famously called La Bestia or the Beast train because of how dangerous it is. But I kind of say, joke that I was on first class Bestia because it wasn't the image some people may have of holding on for dear life on top, which is what hundreds of people do and were doing on that train that I was on. But I was on a car, in a car, um, where you could actually climb in and, and sit down and you're in sort of a boxcar, but there's you can only get in from the top. And so that's where the remaining uh, women, children, um, uh, and families were, which were only a few dozen. So there's two of those cars next to each other. And I got on at night and people just kind of all curled up and went to sleep. Um, and that's actually the opening shot of the film is this um, – on the train and it's dark and then this light we go by this street light and it floods onto the the car train you can see little body like all these bodies curled up you know in a row um very ominous looking and yeah people are helping each other out people are you know for example it's really really hot and a lot of and really you know blazing sun during the day and everyone you know there's some shots of people all working together to tie these blankets together above us so that we had shade. Um, and then the train was, we were going to get off after one day um, and stop at this other town where there was, you know, the, the caravan organizers had, 
you know, coordinated with this church up ahead at this next town and they were going to have food for everyone and a place to stay. But because the prior leg of the trip had been so difficult with local um, governments stopping the train in terms of trying to deter, deter them because of the pressure from Donald Trump. Uh, and then suddenly on this leg, we were flying. No one was stopping us. We were making a lot of really good progress. And so one of the organizers jumped from train to train to take a vote and see, okay, do you want to stop or do you want to keep going? And everyone voted to keep going. Like, let's keep making headway. But we did stop anyways. And then a dozen trucks pulled up full of this amazing fish soup. Um, and we all stopped and had dinner. This is the next day. Um, and then we got back on. It was like, all right, we're getting back on in an hour and a half. Everyone go to the bathroom, eat some soup and get back on. So it just shows how, A, how organized this, this group of activists are. Um, and B, the amazing and incredible network of mostly churches along this train line and various train lines across the country where migrants pass through all the time, the, the, the amazing network of aid that exists. I mean, these people are obviously pros in making huge quantities of food that they give away for free to these people that are passing through. Um, and they're, you know, and other, there's other, you know, I've heard so many stories, for example, other, you know, kid, people have grown up on these towns that are along these train routes. They're like, oh yeah, on the weekends, if we heard there was a group coming or or we just would go, we knew there was a train was coming, we would go and throw water bottles into the train for people or throw food or, you know, people would throw clothes, extra clothes or baby medicine, things like this, like just to help people that were on the train. That's a documentary I hope someone else makes someday. Um, it's so fascinating to me. We haven't even really started talking about your documentary. You have been leading up this project since you were on that caravan years and years ago, a documentary film project called All We Carry that is finally out in the world you mentioned that you were following a family. The parents in that family's names are Magdiel and Myrna. Can you tell us a little bit more about their story? So, of course, you already said that the father in the family was on the train while the, the mother and child were on buses. Um, they get through northern Mexico. And what happens when they get to the border? Right. So Magdiel, the father in the family, and I were on that, that leg of the train that ended up being three days. Uh, and we ended in Hermosillo. Um, and then they were, we got off and it was a day later, I think, when the, when the, bus, the buses ended up getting there. We actually beat the buses. And then you see in the film, it's a little bit of a spoiler, but it's only a few minutes in, that they reunite and we see Magdiel and, and Myrna finding each other again because, you know, that's a really big point of tension in the beginning of this story that it is so dangerous to travel, especially particularly on these trains, um, that they're, it's not lost on them that, you know, if you separate on this journey, you there's a chance you don't see each other again, you know? Um, people die all the time on these trains. So we see that, um, that, that, reuniting moment and that's when we meet Mirna and their baby Joshua who at the time was just a year and a half um so yeah they're from Honduras they're a young family and they were they were forced to leave because they had you know one of their Mirna's brothers had a plot of land and there's a lot of in their region of the country they were in a rural region of Honduras there is a lot of 
um, presence of narco traffickers. It's essentially, you know, this middleman country um, in Central America where that, you know, drug trafficking is going through and a narco trafficker individual in the group um, wants, at some point wanted her brother's land and he wouldn't hand over the deed and hand over the land. So they started killing them one by one. And so after that started happening, obviously the family was, you know, displaced internally and then ultimately left, had to leave the country. So many of them started coming um, because their whole family was targeted. Um, And Magdale and Myrna find their way to Seattle. And they find their way into a community, a supportive community of people who are trying to hold them up as they're dealing with the various legal processes of what it could possibly mean to stay in the U.S., right? Right. Tell us about that process and the community they found that were lifting them up without giving too many spoilers for your documentary. (laughs) Right. So they got to Seattle because they had extended family there. But like I said, a lot of people from their family had to flee. So suddenly it was really crowded and they just couldn't stay there for the whole time that they were going to be waiting for their final asylum hearing, which was going to be year, which was ended up being years. Um, so they needed a place to live. They reached out to the International Rescue Committee, and that group reached out to this interfaith group of people, um, group of organizations in the Seattle area that support refugees, asylum seekers, immigrants in various ways. And this one synagogue made this announcement um, at High Holy Day Services in the fall of 2018. And one family said, oh, yeah, we've got an extra home. And it ended up being this huge, gorgeous home on the, on the sound uh, right next to their own home. <laughs> so they said they can move in. And that's when I thought, OK, I better figure out how to make a movie because this is this is one in a million story. Um, and of course, I was intrigued by this connection between two very different communities and families, but that have this shared experience of, you know, many people in the the synagogue had this experience of a history of, you know, persecution and their own family having to flee and come to the U.S. as refugees. And so um, that really intrigued me. And it was a beautiful, it develops into this really beautiful connection um, between Magdalene and Myrna's family and a couple key families in the synagogue that were really supporting them. And so as soon as they had this home that they could live in, everyone started immediately signing up. Oh, well, I want to take them to, you know, the story time at the library and I want to take them to the aquarium and I'll take them grocery shopping. So the joke is kind of like, oh, they were just like just as obsessed with them as I was. (laughs) Like they're just such, um, such a charming family and people really fall in love with them when they meet them. And I, it was, a you know, it was right after the family separation scandal. It was right before the tree of life shooting that happened at the synagogue in Pittsburgh. And it was a time when I think people really wanted to do something tangible, or at least, you know, this particular community in Seattle, the idea of being able to help one family and interact with them regularly and get to know them was really appealing. And it was beautiful to watch unfold. And we are running out of time. I, I want to invite people into the documentary a little bit more without, again, giving spoilers. Um, 
can you talk just briefly about the process of of developing the documentary? Because I know it w- it was a long process for you, um, and maybe if we can round that out with if there's any particular message, whether it's politically or personally, that you would hope folks who are able to see the documentary could walk away with. Yeah, absolutely. So the process for me and, you know, the decision to make the film was, like I said, when this big plot twist happened in their story and they find themselves essentially in this mansion. But it was also really inspired by, you know, I had the experience of reading about the caravan and then being on the caravan and seeing how different it was and being able to embed with that community for three, you know, for three weeks, basically, um, it had a different look and feel than it does when you're watching it on the news. And that's really stuck with me thinking, okay, we hear these stories in in one certain way. And it's not always, you know, the, it's not the fault of journalists, but you have to distill these, these concepts down. Um, and, but I wanted a really personal look, something much more up close and intimate. So that's what also inspired me to make this story was to be kind of, Every all the moments you don't see on the news, and also on top of that, um, there's so much there was, and there is about to be a lot more attention on the border. But what happens after that? That's the part we don't hear about as much. And so this long limbo that people are forced to be in, waiting for their asylum hearing, that's what I wanted to explore. And the particular story that this family goes through because they are given now they're they're no longer in survival mode. They're they have their basic needs met, this house and support with, with um, you know, some of their basic needs, then they had suddenly had this burden and blessing of kind of nothing but time, which I think really pushed the timeline of them processing the trauma they had just gone through. So that's when the story really becomes a love story, a story about marriage. What does it mean to be going through this healing process together as a young family? And that's the part too, where I think, you know, thankfully most people haven't had the experience of needing to flee the way that they did. But a lot of young families do have, you know, they go through things and they have to overcome them. Um, And I think that this story is an inspiration for that as well, Um, how they stood by each other and how they got through it. Um, and also with the inspirational side of the story of the community that's supporting them. Is there anything else? I'm I'm going to ask you in a just a minute to introduce the screening that's coming up. But um, is there anything else that you would hope um, that people will? I mean, we don't know who here is going to see the film, and we hope that it becomes available to everyone eventually. But that from the story, from the lessons there, that people will walk away with. Yeah, I think this the story is also really for anyone who's faced grief before and the complex experience of after losing someone, what is it like then anytime something big happens in your life? And we see so many moments of joy in this film um, that this family ex- um, experiences. And we see the way that joy and sorrow and grief and wonder all interact in a single moment a lot of times that's life and that's what we really tried to capture in this film um, is the nuance and complexity of that experience Um, so I really hope people are moved by that and you know I want people to know it's not it's you're not signing up to go just see a really 
sad story. It's so much more complex than that. And how can people see the film? So we are having our Bay Area premiere on February 25th at 12 p.m. noon at the Vogue Theater in San Francisco. Uh, We are going to be part of the San Francisco Jewish Film Festival's Winterfest, which is taking place over that whole weekend on the 24th and 25th. And after the screening, we're going to have a panel where we'll have some experts also joining me um, and we'll have a special guest that I'm not going to also spoil, Um, but you should really come. And I want to also invite people to reach out to me and my film team if you're interested in hosting a screening, community screening or a theatrical screening here in the Bay Area. We would love to do more of those. So, and you can find me, you can find um, our film at allwecarrydoc.com and also at allwecarrydoc uh, on Instagram. And that's the voice of Katie Vogue, whose new film, All We Carry, is getting ready for its Bay Area premiere screening at the San Francisco Jewish Film Festival. Katie, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Our pleasure. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. Our Resistance in Residence theme music was composed by Jesse Strauss. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis. And subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listeners. If you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.